Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. I know Brad preached on this text last week, and I, I appreciate his treatment of that, and, and, and it'll dovetail well with uh, what I share today as we, we hope to dig in to this a little bit deeper, too. And I also want to thank Dale Van Dyke for many of the insights that, uh, that I've gotten from him that I'll be sharing with you this morning as well. But let's look at God's Word, uh, Galatians chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too uh, are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Um, you may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I want to thank you so much that we could come before you this morning and we could hear your word. Lord, I thank you, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, that the power of the gospel is not the power of the persuasion of the speaker who is speaking, but it is um, the Word of God that is being proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we come this morning and the, the speaker is weak, maybe a little slow of mind this morning, uh, God, that's okay. Um, because we ask you to speak to us. We ask you to proclaim to us the truth of your Word. And we're excited to come and, and to hear what you have to say to us. So give us ears to hear, Lord, uh, to receive these words by faith. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, as we come to our text today in, in the book of Galatians, as, as you may know if you've ever studied this book, it really is a book about justification, about how we are made right with God. And and you may wonder, well, how does that fit in, Pastor Rick, with this series that you're doing on being devoted to God, on what it means to be sanctified, to, to grow in our faith, to die more to sin and to live, to be more like Jesus Christ? Well, you know, uh, how we are justified affects our understanding of sanctification and, and our understanding of where we have the power to do so. And, and as we get into our text more well, we're going to begin talking about justification, I think you're going to see more how this relates to our, our sanctification. And so let's just jump into our text. Uh, Paul, 
is in the midst of an argument with the false teachers that we call Judaizers, right? These were men, Jewish men, who professed faith in Jesus Christ, but who were trying to lead the church astray to live by the law. They were teaching that to become a Christian, you needed to believe in Jesus, yes, but you also needed to believe or to come under the Mosaic law. And so, you know, you could look at that and you could say, well, weren't they preaching the gospel because they were preaching Christ? Well, the gospel is not just Christ. It is Christ alone. And, and they were wanting to add Christ and the law as a necessary requirement to come. And they were very successful in doing so. As a matter of fact, I'll say wildly successful. So much so that, that these Jewish Christians were, were accepting their teachings. And, and even amongst these Christians was the Apostle Peter and Barnabas as well. Now, brothers and sisters, that ought to cause us a great pause. It ought to be a sober reminder for us as we look at Peter and how he was easily sucked into this of how quickly we gravitate as humans to the law. We like to focus on the external. We like to focus on, you know, just tell me what to do, right? Just tell me how to do it. We, that, that's just like the water in which we swim. We just feel so at home in regards to that. But that's not the gospel. Um, and, but, you know, so it shows us how quickly we gravitate to the law, but also how slowly we are to live in grace and by faith. Now, Paul is very faithful to, to stand against this error and, and to combat this deadly error with, first of all, personal rebuke to Peter, but also then just a powerful reminder of the gospel truth that by works of the law, no one is justified, he says in verse 16. The law is powerless to make us right with God. It can't do that. And, you know, I could say to you, here are all the commands of God, just keep these, but you would not be able to do that. I cannot do that, right? Because of our struggle with sin. And, and so uh, we see here that the law is powerless to make us right with God. The Christian life is to be lived by faith, not by the law. The, the Christian life isn't defined by what we do. Do you hear me? The Christian life is not defined by what we do, but by what God has done for us in Christ. Now, if you don't hear anything else, hear that. The Christian life isn't defined by what we do, but by what God has done for us in Christ. As you think about your Christian life, as you think about the way that you live your life each and every day, is that what's at the foremost of your mind? What has Christ done for me? And how am I living in that? Or is your temptation maybe to be, you know what, I need to do this for God. I need to do that for God. I need to do this better. I need, I need to do this more. I need to do this less. And, and so our focus is on those externals. Well, imagine, if you would, that a traveling salesman comes through Andover or whatever, whatever community you're from, and a man is selling a machine that could turn you into a bionic Superman, okay? And uh, with all these incredible physical abilities, right? You'll, you'll have the eyesight of a hawk, or you'll, you'll be able to run as fast as a gazelle, and you'll be strong as an ox, or maybe I should say you'll be as strong as Hulk, 
I don't know. But anyway, but you know, you'll just have this great strength. All you have to do is just to step into this box, which is about the size of a small closet, and, and just stand there for about 10 minutes, and out will come a brand new you. Now, you may think, well, God, that sounds really cool. You know, but then you also may have some questions. You know, what, what, what's this actually going to do to me? How, how does it affect my body? Is it going to, like, take out my eyeballs and put in new eyeballs? Or, you know, what, what's going to happen here? And so you may ask the salesman that, and I'm sure he, if he wants to sell you this item, he'll explain exactly what's going to happen. But in a similar way, Paul explains what God actually does to a person when they come to Christ in faith. And that's what I want us to look at today. And, and you'll see that part of that is, is as it affects how our sanctification. But the first thing we see is, is that there is a, a freedom that is given to us. In verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, Paul talks about this a whole lot more extensively in Romans 6, Romans 7. Uh, but the point is, is that we are all born under the requirements of the law. And the law requires us to live in obedience to God and forbids any disobedience or any rebellion whatsoever. And, and if you keep the law, you'll live. Bottom line, no big deal. But if you break the law, even at one point, then guess what? You're guilty actually of breaking all of the law, James tells us, and you'll die. You'll go to hell and you'll suffer the just penalty of your rebellion and your sin against God. Very simple. Now, for us, the reality is we have all broken the law. Especially as you look at what, how Christ defines the law in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's not just a, a matter of murder. It's a matter if you get even angry with someone, then you have broken the law. You have con you've broken that law of murder. And so as you look at that, none of us can stand before the law of God. None of us can be made right with God. We, we've already blown it. So the question is not, hmm, can I be made right with God? But the, really the critical question is, how can we possibly escape the penalty that's already due to us? Well, you know, I guess one way to put it is you could say we've, we've all done the crime, so how do we avoid the time, right? That's sort of the question at hand that Paul is addressing here. The only way out is to pay for the crime or through death. Uh, what I mean by that is, is you could pay for the crime and you could pay the penalty. Let's just say you robbed a bank and the judge gives you 20 years. Well, once you've served those 20 years, you actually had paid the debt. The, the law no longer has a claim on you because that penalty has been paid. The other way to be free from that is to die, okay? The, the law has a claim on you only as long as you are alive. If you die, you're out of the reach of the long arm of the law, right? The prosecuting attorney can't do anything to you. He has to drop your case if you drop dead of a heart attack. He can't prosecute you if you're dead. And Paul says that's exactly what happens to a person when they come to Christ in faith. You know, we've committed this grievous sin against the true and the living God, and, and the law of God is hot on our heels to convict us. But when we flee to Christ, uh, we escape the penalty of the law. How? Both through payment 
and through death. Both. First of all, through the death of Christ on the cross. Uh, the death of Christ on the cross was Christ paying the just penalty for sin. Now, it wasn't paying for Christ's sin because Christ became a man. He became a person. He was human like you and I. I know in our minds, brothers and sisters, our temptation is always to think, well, Jesus was different. But Jesus is as human as you and I are human. Now, he is a human, though, who has not sinned. And so, therefore, we know that his death was not for himself or for his sin, to pay the penalty for his sin. He went to the cross as the federal head for his people, for, for humanity to die for them. And he died for all of it, for all their sin. There's no more debt to be paid. The demand of the law is satisfied. But Christ's death also became our death so that in regards to the law, we're dead. The law has no claim on us. It, it can never again accuse us. Why? Or why not, I guess I should say. And the answer is because of the cross. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. You see, Paul wants us to understand that something radical has happened to him here when he came to, when he came to faith in Christ. He was crucified with Christ, and, and Paul means it not as an analogy or a metaphor, but as a spiritual reality. Now, a couple weeks ago, as we were looking at, at, at a text in Romans, we took time to sort of look at some of the tenses of the verbs, and I said, I'm not trying to become a grammar Nazi, but sometimes it is very helpful to understand some of the grammar in the text to understand what's going on. And, and Paul here uses the perfect tense, which is meant to describe something that really and truly happened to Paul in the past, but with an ongoing input or uh, impact in his life. And he died in Christ, and that has a continual impact. But it's also in the passive tense, which means it's something that happened to him. Paul didn't say, I crucified myself with Christ. He didn't choose to crucify himself. Someone else crucified him. And who was it that crucified him? God did. And, and praise God that he did so. Now you think, what? He put, he put us to death, but he did so. God in his saving mercy did that. He gave, gave me, gave you to Jesus, so that as Jesus died on the cross, that I died with him. Philip Ryken put it this way. He said, he points out that there's four things that were nailed to the cross. The first thing was Christ himself as the Son of God. He was nailed to the cross. The second of all was that sign that uh, Herod had nailed to the cross that said that Jesus was the King of the Jews. That was also nailed to the cross. Uh, according to Colossians 2.14, the other thing that was nailed to the cross was the guilt of our crimes and our legal record. Colossians 2.14 said this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And the fourth thing that was nailed to the cross was you. It was me. It was those who, who placed their faith in, in Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. The death of Jesus on the cross was not just something that happened to him. It's something that happened to all who believe in him. His death is, is really and truly our death. The, the debt to the law has been paid and we died to the law. 
Now, consequently, what that means is, is that the law no longer has a hold or a claim on me. I am no longer under law, but under grace, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 15. And so, when the Judaizers come to Paul, and they say, you must submit yourself to the law to be saved, Paul says, I'm sorry, I died to the law as a means of righteousness. I, I'm no longer, it has no hold on me. It has no claim on me whatsoever. So I don't have to do that. As Martin Luther put it so well, he said, a Christian is not someone who has no sin or feels no sin, right? I mean, we all still sin. We still struggle with sin. We know that. I, I'm not saying it's as if all of a sudden we live a perfect life, but a Christian is someone to whom, because of his faith in Christ, God does not impute his sin to him. Instead, our sin is given to Jesus Christ. Now, where does that, where does that come to bear in your life? Well, let me ask you this. Did you sin this week? At all? Maybe a time or two, right? We sort of chuckle at that. We know that we have sinned a lot. Did you scream at your kids or get angry at your spouse? Did you lie? Did you sin sexually? Did you steal from your boss by not giving them a true day's work even though they paid you a full day's wages? And, and we could go on and on and on. Did you worry? Did you, was your heart fretful about things? The gospel says that God doesn't impute that sin. It doesn't stand between you and God. It doesn't stand in the way of God declaring you to be righteous. The law doesn't have a claim on you. That's where the rubber meets the road. Amen? Amen. That should cause even Presbyterians to rejoice and to get excited. Now, some people might look at that and go, okay, well, that, that's fine. But as Paul says earlier, you know, uh, in, in our text, but, but, but isn't that sort of dangerous to tell religious people that? What, what about morality? What about obedience to, the, to, to uh, Christ? And what about obedience to the rules and and the commands laid out in Scripture. And like I said, Paul talks more about that even in Romans 6 and, and 7. But he does talk about it here too as well because he, he not only talks about the freedom that we have, but he also talks about our identity in verse 20. He said, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, we need, we need to clearly understand that what happens to us when we come to faith in Christ. When you come to Christ in faith, you... You enter in sort of to that gospel machine. Let's go back to that guy whose kids that you know that's selling that machine that you can get into and it makes you this Superman. But you know, for us as Christians, we sort of get into that gospel machine, as it were, and you come out a miraculous new person. You aren't the same old version, but with a nice wax job, you are in fact a new creation in Jesus Christ. I mean, you're different. You're different. The new you is something that has never existed before. And by faith in Christ, which unites you to Christ, you suddenly discover that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. 
Now, it's, it's easy to know that and yet forget that. I was listening this week to Sinclair Ferguson, who was uh, teaching on this subject, and, and he talked about how um, he was familiar with someone in the South who had grown up, well, excuse me, they hadn't, but I think it was their grandfather who had grown up a slave in the South. And he said, you know, he goes, it's just sort of hard to believe that even in such recent history that we've had slavery in our country. But even as the slavery was abolished, and you would think that the slaves would be, oh, this is great, now I have all this freedom. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson was recounting about how difficult it was for people who had grown up in, under slavery that they still oftentimes thought as a slave rather than thinking as a free man. And the reality is, is that even as Christians, we can struggle with the same thing. We can still think in, in terms of our slaves, our, our bondage and our, our slavery to sin, and we don't see ourselves as free men in Jesus Christ. Um, and by faith in Christ, though, which unites us to him, we, we realize that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. But we forget that oftentimes. We, you know, we forget that his death is, is our death, that his righteousness is your righteousness, that you are righteous because of what he has done for you, not because of the way that you live your life Monday through Sunday. His righteousness is your righteousness. God sees you as righteous, not it's not because you live perfectly in your life each week, but because we're in Christ. You see, his status as the Son of God becomes your status as an adopted child of God. So you are a son because he was first a son. Now, um, one thing that we discovered with our kids, we always try to teach them to be financially responsible, which means don't really incur debt if you can help. You know, um, at least if you do only for certain things. So our kids sort of grew up living within their means, not borrowing money and, and stuff like that. And so as they got older, they got married, they got out on their own. You know, they had been very financially responsible. Many of them had savings and stuff like that. But then they went to buy a house and guess what? They had no credit. So they couldn't buy a house because they had no credit. And so, you know, one thing that my wife and I sort of found out, and it was sort of by accident, but it was sort of neat to know, and, and by the way, I've checked all of this out, this is all legal and everything. Um, we found out that if we add our kids to our credit cards, then our credit score becomes their credit score. And so we had kids that went and applied for a loan to buy a house, and they couldn't get it because they had no credit. They came back a couple months later after being on our credit card, and voila, they have this fantastic credit. It's amazing. Our credit has been imputed to them. It has been given to them. Their status in the eyes of the bank had changed. They were like, wow, we want to give these people money. We want to give them more money than they want, you know, because they have such a good credit score. And that's what happens to us, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that this morning? Do you realize that that's who you are, that you have this new life in Christ, and, and that even his resurrected eternal life is your new life? You know what? The new life that you hope to have one day in heaven, Christ is living now. 
And that life is yours even now while you're here upon this earth. I'll explain more about that later. The spirit that dwelt in him now dwells in you to ensure that everything he has and all that he has purchased for you is certainly and eternally yours. You see, when you become a Christian, you don't become slightly modified version of your old self. When you come to faith in um, when you come to Jesus in faith, you're a brand new you, and the essence of that newness is your is your new union with Christ. And 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 that's what answers the concern about well, won't we just sin more if 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 we're given this freedom in Christ? And and the answer is no. Because we've been given a new life. We've been, we've been changed. If Christ lives in you, you will hunger for obedience. You will long for holiness. There will be a power at work within you that makes you grieve over your sin. Will you still be drawn to sin? Will you still be tempted to sin? Yes! But when you give in to that sin, it will break your heart. Because it grieves you. Because that's not who you are. That's not the life that you have. In Jesus Christ, you see, the Son of God came into the world for us by taking and sharing our human nature. Uh, we talk about that as the incarnation, and we just celebrated that at, at Christmas time. And, and at the beginning of, of his life on earth, he was conceived by the power of the Spirit in the darkness of the womb of the Virgin Mary. And the Son of God took human nature in its frailty and poverty in order to live a perfect life for us in our place. And because he has taken our human nature, and he is like us, brothers and sisters. He is like us in all that frailty. And, and I think we oftentimes forget that, but he lived in perfect obedience to his Father for us, and he died for our sins, and he's been raised to newness of life, and he's ascended to the Father, in the nature that he assumed. Jesus is still human. And there are now resources in the hands of the Holy Spirit to justify us and to sanctify us and to glorify us. I think we oftentimes realize when it comes to our justification that we're like, yes, everything we have and we need is in Jesus Christ. I am only right with the Father because of what Christ has done for us. But do you realize that all the resources that you need to be sanctified are yours in Jesus Christ? And so what is the, what is the dynamic power that, that, that is available to you that you might live the Christian life? It is Christ in me. Amen? It is Christ in me. Every temptation that you encounter, He has encountered, and yet He has not given in to that sin. He has lived in righteousness and, and he is available to us. And so uh, the resource given to the Holy Spirit is this holy human nature. And so to the Christian, that we live in union with Christ, which means Christ is in us and I am in Christ. Now, you, you might think of it this way. I don't know, this sort of a silly illustration maybe, but you think of your hand. Your hand isn't just attached to your body. It actually is part of your body. It's in union with your body. The blood that flows through your body flows through your hand. The life that flows through your body flows through your hand as well. It's not just attached. It's 
There's an organic relationship. The Bible uses the description in, in John chapter 14 and 15, where it was specifically 15, talking about the vine and the branches. And that's the relationship that we have as we are in union with Christ. There's this organic relationship. And so Christ united himself to our flesh while on this earth so that out of his, his perfect humanity, the Holy Spirit made we may draw on that in order to conform us into Christ's likeness. And that's why Jesus says in, in John 16, as he's uh, in the upper room discourse, he's talking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about leaving and talking about how he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says in John 16, 14, He, that is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it or show it to you. That's exactly what he's talking about. Is he will give him those resources that, that we need. And so the way that we are united to Christ, the way that Christ is in us, is by his Holy Spirit. And the way that we are in Christ is as we live by faith. Now we're going to talk more next week about the Holy Spirit. So I'll just sort of leave that there. But look at verse 20 as we come to the third point that we see that he has given us a new life. He says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, the Christian life is lived in the flesh, okay? It's in our body. It's living our life here in the world where the world is seeking to conform and to press us uh, into its image where Satan is seeking to tempt us. Um, it, the Christian life is lived in the flesh in all the reality of this broken and the sinful world with all the realities of this not yet perfect self. We live the Christian life in the reality of weakness and failure and sin. I want you to understand that. Paul recognizes that. It's not like all of a sudden then life's just different. The world can't touch me. That's not the case. But that is exactly why it's critical to live this Christian life by faith. Because the world is telling us one thing about ourselves. Satan is telling us lies about ourselves. And about our desires and about the things that we want. Rather than helping us to see who we truly are. And living in that reality in Jesus Christ. And, and so what does it mean to live by faith? What, what does it mean to, to, and to do this in practice? Well, too often when we approach the Christian life, um, we oftentimes do so, whether we do this consciously or not, we think that God does everything to save me. He opens my eyes, He regenerates me, He grants me new life in Christ, and as such, He, he gives me a fresh start uh, on life. He sort of, we get to start with a blank slate, right? And so oftentimes that's how we see ourselves. And so then we oftentimes mistakenly think it's up to me to get busy and to serve Christ. To, to show him how grateful I am for all that he has done. And so faith alone gets me in to, to being in Christ. Then effort is what moves me along. And after all, hasn't God given us his Holy Spirit who is to transform us? Does the Holy Spirit not give us power? And so I need to get about it and use this power that the Holy Spirit has given me so I can do something to show Christ that I am worthy of all he has done for me. 
Now, that's not exactly how we would state our theology, brothers and sisters. But it's not uncommon for us to live that theology out in our lives. Or at least be tempted to do so. And that's why I said, you know, do we look at our lives? Or do, we, do we sort of gauge the well-being of our lives and our relationship with God based on what we do? Or in recognizing what Christ has done for us? You see, the problem with such thinking is, is it doesn't take into account the presence of sin in the life of the believer. You know, Paul says, you know, I, I don't do what I want to do, or I do what I don't want to do. You, you see this, this tension, this, this conflict that, that is in him, even as, as a believer. Nor does it allow for God's ongoing grace and mercy in the life of the believer. What it does is, is it basically... Uh, puts our sanctification, the well-being and the progress of our sanctification on our own abilities. The third thing that I think we need to recognize is just because God commands us to do something does not mean we have the ability to do it. Now that may sound a little strange at first. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit more. This week I was reading Jeremy Walker's book, Life in Christ, uh, parts of it, and he was uh, quoting a Puritan by the, no by the name of John Flavel, and John Flavel was speaking of, of the writer of Proverbs and how Proverbs says, keep your heart pure. And yet uh, Flavel was making the remarks. He says, we have no more ability to keep our hearts pure than we do to stop the sun in its course or to cause a river to flow upstream. We can't do either one of those things. You know, and if you look at the Bible, especially as it talks about how the heart is deceitful above all things, and stuff you could see that we that's not something that we can necessarily do um, but then he goes on he said you see while the expression keep your heart seems to make it our responsibility he said yet it does not imply a sufficiency or ability for us to do it in other words just because it's our responsibility doesn't mean it's ours that we have the ability to do it and I think that's what we struggle with in our sanctification is that oftentimes we say, but God has commanded me to, to love others. God has commanded me, you know, to, uh, um, to use my money in a wise way. You know, God has commanded me uh, not to do these certain things. I mean, we saw the works of the flesh as we read in our text. And he says, don't do those things. But the reality is we can't make that happen. We don't have that ability. But if we think of the Christian life as God in me, as being united to Jesus Christ, as he has lived out that, and he is that human being that has lived in perfect righteousness, then all of those resources are available to us. And we can go to him and, and we can cry out to him uh, as his spirit lives in us. You know, as the Bible talks about all the, the different things of redeemed humanity and its statements and its commands. I mean, if you are redeemed in Christ, then you are a person that loves others. If you are redeemed in Christ, then you are a person who does not commit sexual immorality. If you are a person who, who is redeemed in Christ, then you redeemed the time. And the list could go on and on and on and on. And, and Christ has done and continues to do all these things. And so as we read God's word, as we understand our union with Christ, we now go to Jesus saying, Jesus, I can't do these things. I can't do any of these things.
But you can do these things in me. Because we are united in Christ. Does that make sense? Jeremiah Burroughs uh, speaks of this, and he puts it very well, when he said, you know, from Christ, you know, just like from a fountain, sanctification flows into the souls of the saints. You see, our sanctification comes not so much, he says, from their struggles. You know, as we're struggling to try to, to live the Christian life, that's not what's going to accomplish it. It's not going to endeavor as we endeavor to do better. It's not as we make vows, oh God, I promise I'll do better next time, or as we make these resolutions. It's not going to come from that. Burroughs goes on, he says, but it will come as it comes flowing to them from their union with him, as Christ is working in me. You see, the, the message of the New Testament is absolutely thrilling at this point and deeply fosters our growth. You see, it is living each day trusting that Jesus died for me. By faith, I have been united to him so that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. And I need to believe that. I need to trust that. I, I need to claim that in faith as it's the truth about me because God says it's true. You see, if grace is the foundation of our sanctification, then how is that grace given to us? Well, that's the, as you read what the Bible says, it is given to us through our union with Christ. Now, you say, now wait a minute, Pastor Rick, but what about the darkness that remains in my life? What about the spiritual lethargy? What about the habitual sin? What about the, the, the deep-seated resentment? What about that place in your life where you feel most defeated? Those, you know, the reality is, you know, if, if we're honest with ourselves, our sins loom large in our lives, do they not? They seem so insurmountable. But Christ and your union with Christ looms still larger. As far as sin in your life reaches, Christ and your union with Him reaches further. As deep as your failure goes, Christ and your union with Him go deeper. As strong as your sin feels, the bond of your oneness with Jesus Christ is stronger still. Do you believe that? These, these are not just platitudes that I'm standing up here behind this pulpit proclaiming to you. These are truths. These are realities. If you will just trust Jesus Christ and look to him to do his work in you. Live the rest of your life mindful of your union with the Prince of Heaven. Rest in the knowledge that your sins and failures can never kick you out of Christ. Let her ever-deepening awareness of your union with Him strengthen your resistance to sin. See it in the Bible. Ponder it. You know, it's interesting that if you look at the Bible, I mean, we call each other Christians, and there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible does refer to believers as Christians. But it's interesting that if you look at the titles that the Bible uses for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, the term Christian is probably the one that's used the least in the Bible. That disciple is oftentimes used. Or in the case of the Apostle Paul, the term that he uses, and, and someone uh, made this comment I didn't 
verify it to see if it's true or not, but they said if you read Paul's writings, in every chapter that he writes, there's at least two or three times where he uses this phrase, in Christ. That's how Paul refers to a person who is a Christian, who is someone who is in Christ. And, and see that in the Bible and ponder uh, his tireless care for you. you. You have been strengthened with the power to fight and to overcome sin because the power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in you and is living and is active for Christ himself resides in you. Is that not good news, brothers and sisters? You can never be justifiably accused ever again because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can also say, in whom Christ is also in them. So draw strength from that oneness that you have from Christ. You are no longer alone. You are no longer isolated. You are no longer limited in your Christian life by your own strength or your own weaknesses. But you can come to Christ no matter what it is that you're struggling with. Are you, are you struggling with worry? Are you struggling with anxiety? Uh, have you been betrayed? Is, 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 is life pressing in upon you? If there's anybody that understands it, it is our Savior who has experienced all that in His humanity. And He walked righteously through that. And that resource is available to you and you can come to him and you could cry out to him. And he not only understands, but he enables you and he gives you strength, brothers and sisters. And when you do sin, don't give up. Let him pick you up and put you on your feet again with fresh dignity. He, he lifts your chin and he looks into your eye and he defines your existence. And he said, you and me and I and you. Don't forget that. We're united together. But he says that not only do we live by faith, understanding that these things are true, but then he says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the life I live in the flesh with all of its weakness, with all of its failure and sin, is lived by faith in the rescuing, atoning love of Jesus. You see, the biblical gospel is so personal he loved me. Do you know that? Do you know that love this morning? That love of God? Jesus didn't die to simply open up a space in heaven for sinners if they choose to enter in. He didn't die for an unnamed mass of people. He died for you. He died for me. Jesus loved you before the foundation of the world as the Father gave you to belong to him. Jesus loved you when he took all your sin and all your guilt and he died for you. And this is the faith of a Christian, brothers and sisters. Not a performance-driven faith. Not a can-I-measure-up-somehow kind of faith. But a life of faith in the conviction of love. It, it is a, a faith that understands how deeply God loves him. A life of trusting in God instead of trying to be better. A life of experiencing the reality of Christ in you. A life of knowing that Jesus loves you and, and loves you and, and nothing can separate you from that love. And I mean 
nothing. Now, how could you know that's true? I just want to close with this. It's simple. The cross where he died for you shows his great love. Amen? And so we, as his children, can trust him. We can look to him because he is the power that's needed to make us like him. Let's bow our heads this morning and let's just reflect upon these truths. And, and I just want to encourage you to silently respond to the Lord as, as is appropriate this today. Oh, praise be to God for His glorious grace that He has given to us in Jesus Christ, not only to justify us and to make us right with God, but even the wonderful grace that He, he gives us to cause us to grow, to be like Himself. Oh, Lord, we praise and we thank You, Lord, so much for this wonderful resource. God, may we, as we, we leave this place, May our hearts uh, be, be stirred to, to look to you, to turn to you in faith, knowing that the things that you have laid out in your word, that these things are true. Whether we feel them, whether, whether it seems like it's true or not, uh, help us, O oh God, to, to believe these things and, and to walk in, in the reality of them as we look to you, O oh God. And I pray that you would strengthen your people. I also pray, Lord, that if there be anyone here today who's really been basing their relationship upon you, on what they have done, God, that they would give their hearts to you, that they would admit that there's nothing that they could do uh, that could make them right. They could never be good enough for you to accept them. And that instead, that they would look to Christ uh, to pay the penalty for their sin, that they would be identified with him in his death, that they would be set free by grace, through faith, to trust you. Please, oh Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.